I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Rosebay Willow Herb, Enchanter's Nightshade, Herb Robert, Creeping Buttercup. They all sound pretty delightful, don't they? Perhaps to some, but for others those plant names might bring back some pretty bad memories. On your hands and knees, pulling them out of places they shouldn't be. Today we're getting to grips with weeds. They don't need watering, they don't need fertilising, they have hugely long flowering seasons these plants fit in so well to modern design styles for naturalistic planting. You know, it doesn't grow on volcanic ash here. It grows in lovely soil. So it's very vigorous here. I think that I love dandelions for the reason that maybe a lot of people hate them. I absolutely love weeds because they're the plants that are kind of fighting back against what we're doing to the world. I'm Fiona Davison and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. For me, I can't stand bindweed. My blood runs cold when I see that creeping around my roses. But then I don't mind Herb Robert. I think that's very pretty with its filigree leaves. So it's not straightforward with weeds. Although most gardeners would agree, they're simply plants that grow in the wrong places. They aren't all inherently bad. Landscape designer and nature writer Jack Wallington is wild about weeds of all kinds. He believes that by growing these unloved plants in unexpected ways, you'll become a better gardener with a more interesting garden. And after all, who doesn't love a buttercup? Let's hear more. Essentially, weeds have a a PR problem. They've been branded as bad. I kind of saw this scale, which isn't really talked about anywhere, but there's a scale between the really bad, which is Japanese knotweed, which is problematic and we don't want in our gardens. I'm not recommending that, don't worry. And at the other end, you have ornamental plants, the stuff that we put into gardens, and wildflowers sit in that category. And yet somewhere in the middle of that scale are these weeds, which aren't that bad, and they've been unfairly clumped in the Japanese knotweed end, when really they deserve to be up at the end with foxgloves and... Uh, an ornamental plant. And so I think it's just a good time now to stop and throw away all of the categories that we've been putting plants into for a moment and just look at the plants individually, understand them, because there might be one in there that you really like and would really suit your garden. I think my fascination with weeds has been an ongoing thing throughout my whole life. I, kind of, I know I, I certainly got more interested in on my allotment when... I was studying my RHS exams years and years ago when I first took on the allotment. And the guidance was saying, 
you have to keep the beds clear of weeds. And so I was doing that. And, and I do recommend doing that and around vegetables in particular. You need to have as many weeds missing removed as possible. But there were just one or two that I just didn't recognise. And I was like, oh, what is that? And I got curious and just said, oh, you know, what? I'm going to leave that one just to see what it is. I get lots of things that self-seed on my allotment. I was like, oh, you never know what it might be. And after a year or so, there's one particular weed I left, but a year later, I'd completely forgotten about. To my shame, it was covered by more weeds, which I hadn't removed at that point. I just remember looking up on one really nice afternoon, the, the sun was setting, and I looked up and I saw right in front of the sun, I hadn't noticed it, but this huge spire of white glowing with the sun behind it, this orange sky, and it was the, our native foxglove, the white variety of it. And it was just so amazing. I just thought, that just clicked with me. And I just thought, hang on a second, if I'd have removed that, I wouldn't have this amazing plant that will now self-seed and produce more. And and what else am I missing by pulling everything out when I don't know what it all is? So it just sparked this exploration of trying to understand and learn every single weed that I saw coming off of my allotment. And that just spread into gardens as well. And it was an ongoing journey where the more that I left or the more that I spoke to people the more I found that there were some plants classified as weeds that were actually really pretty. Another one on the allotment was purple oxalis, which I know gardeners hate. <laughs> so I'll probably, I always get people going, oh, really? But actually, I stopped to look at it. Oxalis was, has a really pretty leaf and a lovely little yellow flower. And it creates a kind of like a nice mat across the ground which stops other weeds. And it didn't really affect any of my vegetables. It wasn't causing the problems that everyone said it would do. So I just decided to leave that one because it would have been an ongoing battle anyway to keep it under control. I think weeds get a bad rep because they are slightly uncontrollable and they, can't, they want to ruin our plans, essentially. So we have a plan for a vegetable bed or for a flower border. And we spend all this time clearing it, planting it up. And then, lo and behold, it's starting to get going. And then, oh, there's that bindweed coming up from flowering in the middle of it and it's white and it's the wrong colour. We wanted a pink and a purple flower bed. You remove it and it comes back again and it's just an ongoing battle where it's about become a symbol for work and effort, really. Things like cow parsley is almost there in our... It's classified, obviously, it's a wildflower and in gardens, it's people do love it, but I think it should be used more because it spreads just as, as much as any weed. And it can be problematic. It will self-seed around. So, But it's worth it because it's so beautiful and really easy to keep under control just by deadheading or removing excess plants each year. Another one, I was at a, in a client's garden just assessing the garden and doing a survey. I remember a client really clearly pointing to this corner underneath a tree, which is really dry and shady, pointing at it going, There's not, as you can see, nothing grows here. And where they were pointing was actually a really lush, carpet of Herb Roberts, Adranium robertianum, and it was a, um, had the little stars of pink flowers, and it was, it really looked beautiful. I, it couldn't have been any better, and yet to them, because they knew it as a weed, they were going, nothing grows here, and so that, that was a key moment for me. And I actually see Herb Robert growing around wild orchids in some of the, our rarest habitats. Really good for dry shade. I grow it in my own garden in the driest corner where nothing else will grow, and it is a really beautiful little plant. Caperspurge, which is, um, a euphorbia is a weed which has spread around and it's kind of has these acid yellow flowers which form what look like capers but they're, not, they're poisonous so don't eat them but um it's a biennial so in the first year it has this amazing structure of the crisscross leaves growing up the stem growing and designing with weeds can be really beneficial because in a, in a whole number of ways one you're going against the grain <laughs> you're being a rebel like joining the rebel cause and going 
what I've been told as I grow up isn't necessarily true and you're using your own head to reassess plants and see if actually if one or two fit in your garden. But more than that, lots of weeds can be really good for wildlife. So things like uh, white dead nettle are particularly good for bees and they have this enormously long flowering season. They flower from spring right the way through to the end of summer, sometimes all through winter. Even the common daisy is really beneficial for pollinators through winter when very few flowers are, are going, they can still flower and, and early spring. For sustainability reasons, they're absolutely brilliant because they grow where they want to grow and they don't need watering, they don't need fertilising, they have hugely long flowering seasons. So in a world where we need to cut back on water, we don't want to use chemicals, these plants fit in so well to modern design styles for naturalistic planting. And even traditional planting, actually, they can be used in a more formal setting quite well. So wild carrot, I've used a lot in really formal gardens. So really fantastic for all of those reasons. And in a way, people would be mad to rip out weeds. <laughs> Wallington. Although Jack demonstrated that there are good sides to so many weeds, there's one garden beast that is pretty universally unpopular with gardeners and homeowners. It spreads rapidly and by summer the bamboo-like stems emerge from rhizomes deep underground to shoot to over two metres tall, suppressing all other plant growth. It's very hard to get rid of and under the Wildlife and Countryside Act it's even an offence to cause this plant to grow in the wild. I am, of course, talking about Japanese knotweed. If your garden's been blighted by this baddie, never fear. Advisor Nikki Barker is here to help. It is quite alien-esque, isn't it? In its natural surroundings, it grows on the sides of volcanoes. So there's obviously environmental factors that keep it suppressed in its native environment. You know, it doesn't grow on volcanic ash here. It grows in lovely soil. So it's very vigorous here. Japanese knotweed is a herbaceous plant, essentially. It spreads very quickly through rhizomes. It's actually quite attractive. It's got heart-shaped leaves, and it was introduced into this country by a botanist in the 19th century and was widely sold and planted in gardens from that point onwards until, obviously, in more recent times, it's become the invasive problem that it is today. It can regenerate and grow from very tiny pieces. So it only needs one centimetre of root, for example, to be distributed and that will pop up wherever it's left. And tiny pieces of the stem as well, it can grow from that. So it can get into watercourses and be spread for miles and miles. And because it grows very quickly, up to 10 centimetres a day, it quite quickly becomes a problem. And you may even have seen it sometimes growing up through tarmac. It's so strong, it can actually break quite considerable depths of tarmac. The roots go down for two or three metres in some cases. So it is a big problem. It can very quickly take over areas of land. It is an offence to grow or to cause Japanese knotweed to spread in the wild or grow in the wild. So whilst it's not illegal to have it on your property, 
or in your garden, if it spreads to other areas outside of your property, then that is an issue. And so it can affect your ability to sell a house because you have to declare it that it's in your garden. Even if you've got a management plan in place, that might affect the ability of your buyer to buy the house because it can be difficult to get a mortgage offer for a house that has Japanese knotweed in the garden because it's such a problem. You have to have eradication plans in place and there's lots of paperwork involved. So it can seriously affect a a housing chain, definitely. I think the first thing to do would be to make sure that it is Japanese knotweed that you've got in your garden. It's very easy to look up and to match the pictures. It's got very distinctive heart-shaped leaves and almost hollow stems, so it's quite easy to identify. And then the next thing you need to do is work out how you're going to control it and eradicate it. Never expect that to be done quickly. It can take two to four years to eradicate it. It does need herbicide treatments for successful eradication. If you've got a lot of Japanese knotweed, then really you would be best off getting a specialist contractor in. And there's quite a few of them because they can a guarantee the eradication. So if you want to sell a house, that guarantee is in place. That makes a big difference. But also they will have access to herbicides that are maybe stronger and more effective than people can buy in a retail situation. So if you've got a small amount, you know, just a small clump, it needs to take up as much through the leaf, as much herbicide as possible. You might have to treat it two or three times in a year and it will still take, can take several years to eradicate completely. But if you're worried about it, then get a specialist contractor in because that is the most sensible route to go down to ensure that it doesn't spread into other people's gardens or into public open spaces as well. You can't put it in landfill or anything like that. That's illegal. You need to have a licensed waste carrier to remove it. And it's such a tough plant that even if you were to cut some down and burn it, which isn't recommended, it can be done, but you normally have to get permission to do that. It has been found that even stuff that's been burnt on a bonfire, when it's then disposed of, it starts to grow again. So it is a a bit of a thug our stance on it is to follow the government guidelines and make sure you eradicate it and I think also if you notice a small bit of Japanese knotweed in your garden don't delay don't think oh I'll sort that out next year because next year you'll have a bigger problem thanks Nikki now we couldn't really make a podcast about weeds and not mention the dandelion Love them or hate them, they are hard to avoid. California-based grower and educator Indy Srinath is passionate about the sunny flower. My first encounter with a dandelion was when I was a kid in grade school. We used to take the dandelion heads, like the yellow flower part, and rub them on our palms to make our palms yellow for some reason. Dandelions are really incredible. They are a yellow flower that looks a lot like the sun and they have tons of close together petals, a whole lot of petals that make up the entire flower. I think that I love dandelions for the reason that maybe a lot of people hate them because dandelions are actually 
incredibly medicinal. I think that it's very obvious even from just looking at them how nice they make you feel. I mean, they're these little balls of sunshine. But further than that, if you tincture them or put them into a tea, they have great liver cleansing effects. So I think that it's important to kind of think twice about just plucking them from your lawn. (laughs) I do grow dandelions for fun just because the ones that I see growing out in the city, you know, who knows what's happened to them. Maybe, (laughs) maybe they've been gotten some pollutants on them or something. So growing them in the garden is actually great. They love to take over. They're very hardy. So they're a very easy plant to grow and you can put them in very nice growing conditions and they look really beautiful actually. Consuming dandelion, I love consuming it because it's so bitter and it just makes me feel like I'm doing something really great for my body. And when I look at them, they are such a symbol of resilience. Often you'll see dandelions growing out of the concrete, out of sidewalk cracks. You'll see them growing right in the middle of a city or in someone's suburban lawn. So there are these great medicinal little balls of sunshine that you see popping up everywhere. So I really admire their strength and resiliency. Srinath's Ode to the Dandelion. So, we've covered their uses, the problems they pose, but how did they get into our gardens in the first place? Our digital features editor, Gareth Richards, is on the case. I absolutely love weeds because they're the plants that are kind of fighting back against what we're doing to the world. So there's all these extinctions going on, there's all this ecological damage, and there's a whole group of plants that are just saying, actually, do you know what, we're going to fight back and... And we're going to make something of these new conditions that humans are creating. So weeds are weeds because they have different ways of holding their own against humans and they have cunning reproductive strategies. So, for example, they can do it through their roots. So you've got things like bindweed, which has these incredible sort of white, waxy looking roots, which go down for quite a long way into the soil. And as soon as you try and dig them up, they break. And every little piece that breaks can turn into a new plant. Other weeds take the opposite approach. So what they'll do is they'll be very, very tough. So anyone who's ever tried to pull up a dock will know you'll break your fingers before you can uproot the plant. Quite a few weeds will clone themselves as well, so blackberries are brilliant at this. So whenever their shoot tips touch the ground, they'll root and they'll make this incredible colony that will just spread ever outwards. Duckweed does it as well and does it by a process called budding where it just simply divides itself. So it clones, it's much quicker than uh, growing by seed. And actually a piece of duckweed the size of a saucer, like a cup and saucer, can become the size of a rugby patch in 50 days. That's a 10 million fold increase and it's a very efficient way of propagating itself. Some weeds have multiple strategies. So brambles can clone themselves by putting their shoot tips on the ground and rooting, but then they make tasty fruit and let the birds do the work. So the birds will eat the fruit and then they will disperse the seeds over a wide area. So it kind of has this dual approach Whereas other plants, such as buddleia, go for the numbers game. So a buddleia can produce three million seeds a year, which is quite terrifying, really. And they're very, they're very small and light, and they can work their way into cracks 
in buildings and they can be easily transported by other, other means as well. And some are even more adapted to dispersal. So a lot of seeds have what's called a pappus, which is its own parachute. If you look at these closely, it's like a dandelion seed or a dandelion clock, and it's superbly adapted to just catch the tiniest breeze. So with Rose Bay Willow Herb, a scientist decided to see just how effective these parachutes were. And he stood on top of a stepladder, so it was only six feet up, and he dropped them in a draft-free room and measured how long it took for the seeds to hit the floor. And in completely still air, it took more than a minute for them to fall just a few feet. So imagine what effect that has when you're outdoors and there's even the slightest breeze. Other plants, they'll grab you. So things like burdock, which was actually the inspiration for Velcro. A Swiss inventor, George de Mestral, he saw how burdock seeds stuck to his dog and he thought this looks incredibly useful because whatever angle the dog brushes against the burdock seeds, the burdock seeds will stick to him and then be transported miles and miles. Goosegrass does the same thing. It's got what's called trichomes, which are hooked bristly hairs and they're superbly adapted to get into fur into animal skin or clothing or, or whatever and they, they let the animals do the work for them. Whereas others are explosive. So there's a tiny plant called hairy bittercress that you might recognise from, if you bring plants home from the garden centre, it's often one that there'll be this little kind of rosette thing. It's tiny. It will shoot its seeds a metre into the air. And at the other end of the scale, you've got Himalayan balsam, which is our, our tallest wild annual plant. And that can fire its seeds six metres. No wonder it's so uh, incredibly invasive. And of course, sometimes plants use us quite specifically as their means of dispersal. There's some quite clever examples. So, for example, Oxford ragwort, this is quite a well-known story that it comes from the lava fields of Mount Etna, the volcano. So it's used to very barren, kind of stony ground, and it escaped from Oxford Botanic Gardens in the 19th century. And as soon as it got to the railway lines, those trains whooshing along it had a perfect means of dispersal and a habitat that it really enjoyed. But another example that's possibly less well-known is a plant called pineapple weed. It kind of looks a bit like chamomile, but it doesn't have any petals on the flowers. And that is adapted for its seeds to um, go into the tyres of cars. It escaped Kew Gardens in about 1870, and that's just a few decades before the car was invented. And it just went mad. It colonised the whole country within just a few years very kind of good example of how plants are making the most of the conditions that we give them. Gareth Richards. His book, Do Bees Need Weeds, is available for pre-order now. And before we finish, just another little plea to remember that weeds are just wildflowers and can be beautiful. The Lindy Library's got some lovely illustrations by famous botanical artist Lillian Snelling that prove that point. Her composite pictures of wildflowers are just some of the most charming pictures we've got in the library. I have tweeted some this week when the podcast goes out so you can see. But that's all for today's show. Remember, if you ever want any more information about what's in the programme, you can visit our website rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast For now, it's goodbye from me Fiona Davison
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.